The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I pray that as your blood-bought people, chosen and holy and loved, you'd grant us, you'd fill us with all wisdom and knowledge of your will in order that we would live lives pleasing to you in every way. And in particular, I pray for these relationships here in this text, relationship of husbands and wives, relationships between children and parents, and, and uh, as we would climb into the relationship between servants and masters, I pray you'd grant us wisdom and grace to live lives pleasing to the Lord Jesus. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. We've been working our way through Colossians and Paul's teaching concerning how we are to live as believers, as those who've been united with Christ, filled with, with the life of Christ within us, this new life, this power by the Holy Spirit. And we're called to put off the old self and put on the new self, which is being renewed in, in Christ's likeness. And this morning, the focus of attention is... Uh, on the relationships in the household. Last week, the focus really was on the relationships between believers in the church, and now Paul just takes us into another basic sphere of life, the household. And I use the word household on purpose because in the, in the time that this was written, the household wasn't like a nuclear family in America, you know, just mom, dad, and the kids, but the household had all of these relationships in it. Children, or wives and husbands, children and parents, uh, even slaves and, ma- you know, obviously masters would be part of the, the household, but it was this wider group. It would have uh, cousins and, and, and uh, grandparents and, and uncles. It would be, households were bigger. And so... Uh, I'm using the word household on purpose to describe these common relationships that were just part of the ancient Roman world in places like Colossae. And so here's my outline, and, and I want to hang the phrase to the Lord over all three of these. Uh, so Paul, Paul explains or, or gives the teaching, gives the, the, the will of God in these three relationships, so it's a three-point outline, that the responsibility is of wives and husbands to the Lord. Uh, number two, parents and children to the Lord. The responsibilities of parents and children to the Lord. And the responsibilities of bondservants and masters to the Lord. And I'll explain more why I tag to the Lord on each of those by the end. So let's take number one. Uh, responsibilities of wives and husbands to the Lord. Verse 18. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives. and Do not be harsh with them. Now, some of us grew up in homes in which this general biblical pattern was lived out, and, and yet many of us did not. So this teaching might land on you as totally foreign until you became a Christian and, and 
And like I hope all of us have been taught this word from the Bible and have embraced this teaching and are leaning into this as God's design for our marriages. And we all know this is countercultural. It goes without saying. And because of that, I think uh, when sin distorts the pattern, much is made of it. And yet, at the same time, because it's so countercultural, when it takes place and is glorious and beautiful and happy, I, I always like to use the phrase, I'm after happy complementarity in my marriage, it gets overlooked. Just a tip. Don't let that happen. Don't let the sinful distortions of it ruin the happy complementarity that God is laying out for us here. So, just one sidebar. If, if you want access to a document that the elders wrote last February, February of 2021, entitled Manhood and Womanhood, Affirmations and Denials, go to the website, type into the search engine, Affirmations, and either put the word manhood or womanhood. It got confused when I put both of those words in there. So just put affirmations, manhood, or womanhood, and boom, it'll be the first or second hit. And you can read more about our biblical understanding of manhood and womanhood, and, and, uh, and there's a section on marriage there. So let me get into the instructions to the wives. Instructions to the wives. Wives are to submit, submit to their own husbands, verse 18. What does it mean? for a wife to submit to her husband. Wives are called to submit themselves to their own husbands within the context of the marriage covenant. When, when God formed Eve, the first woman, he said to her, excuse me, he said to Adam, he was creating Eve as a helper fit for him, a helper fit for her husband. What does it mean to submit? What does it look like? It's when a wife supports and honors and affirms her husband in his role and responsibility as a husband. And when a wife partners together with him with her God-given gifts and graces in life together. Both husband and wife bear the image of God and therefore there is no diminishing or demeaning in this call to submission, and both share in Christ the promise of salvation and our joint heirs with Christ. And all that, that God promises in, in Jesus is, is both, belongs to both husband and wife. There's, there's no diminishing here. The, the, the submission is of the woman's own doing here in the obedience of faith and trust in the Lord. The tense of the word is to subject, subject oneself. It's, it's a middle tense. Subject yourself to your husband. And, and, and so it's just underscoring, she does this willingly. This is not something done to a wife. In fact, the Bible never instructs husbands to force their wives to submit to them. It's not taught in the Bible. Wives, submit yourselves willingly to your husbands. 
in the Lord. How's the phrase, as is fitting in the Lord, shape our understanding? A couple of points. It means that her submission is to accord with Christ's lordship, his character, his design, his teaching, and his reign. It means that her demeanor is to be fitting of the Christ-likeness of the new self that belongs to all believers, having put on Christ-like love expressed in a heart of compassion and kindness, humility and gentleness and, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. And it means that when submission to her husband conflicts with the will of the Lord Jesus, she is to follow and submit to the Lord Jesus' will and not her husband's. What about the instructions to husbands here? Verse 19, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. What does it mean for a husband to love his wife? It means husbands are in a special covenantal relationship of love and faithfulness to their wives. It means that husbands are to set the tone and direction of the marriage life together, that the life together would be a life oriented toward the Lord Jesus and the gospel, that the hearts would be set on things above and the mind would be set on things above and the wife would submit to him in that and they would go together toward Christ. It means that as Ephesians 5, 25 and following so beautifully lays out, I want to I make sure that husbands are climbing into this and wives. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. So husbands, you're part of the church. So don't jump into loving your wife without receiving the love of Christ for you. So as husbands, we live by faith in Christ, resting in his saving, sacrificial love for us, our reconciliation with God, the forgiveness of our sins, his patience with us. We, we receive the sanctifying work of Christ's word to us as we're constantly being renewed and we repent of our sin and we seek his power, the faith to believe the promises of word that we would be changed washed by his word and, and we receive Christ's uh, provision for our needs as he cares for us. This is all from Ephesians 5. And we rest in his cherishing of us. He, he loves us uniquely and specially as a husband loves his wife. So husbands, Stay there, soak there in the love of Christ for you as one of the members of the church. And then do what the rest of Ephesians 5 says. Turn that outward to your wife. Turn the love that you've received from Christ to your wife and the holiness, the work of sanctification you've received from Christ to your wife 
and the provision of Christ for all of your needs according to his riches and glory into your provision for your wife. In turn, you're cherishing, being cherished by Christ in his love for you into the cherishing of your wife. That's what loving your wives looks like. And then the text cautions. And do not be harsh with them. The Bible never condones marital abuse, never condones harshness of husbands toward wives. Never. There's no place for domineering or manipulation or neglect or abuse in any marriage and all the more so not in any marriage of professing Christians. And it has to be said. Unfortunately, I have to say that. Why would Paul pick these two instructions? Uh, Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Of all the things you could say to husbands and wives, why those two? There's a whole lot of things to say about marriage, about living in accord with the will of God in marriage. Why those two? You have to turn to Genesis 3. If you have a Bible, you have to turn to Genesis 3. I am convinced that Paul chose these two instructions because they, re- they represent Christ's redemption, the new covenant redemption of the damage done to marriage by the curse of original sin. So what, what's Paul doing here in these two things? Redeeming marriage from the effects of original sin. Now here, I'm just going to read one verse. There, here in verse uh, 16, right at the end, the second half, we see the curse of sin and its consequences on the relationship between husband and wife. This is the curse now. This is the curse. Curse language. To the woman, God says, Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Contrary to your husband, and he shall rule over you. Just a sidebar, a cross-reference of the same two words, uh, Genesis 4, 7. I'm not going to go into it, but your desire shall be contrary to your husband, meaning your desire will be to overtake your husband, and, but he shall rule over you. Now, I will never forget, I was teaching a class here a few years, several years ago, Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, a class of 30 on a Wednesday night, and... Uh, one of the things I discovered there is even I mean, at Bethlehem, there's a misunderstanding of what we mean by biblical manhood and womanhood and complementarity because people were all over the map from, from egalitarian to male dominance and they, they all thought to, to healthy, happy complementarity, they all thought they believed what Bethlehem believed. In other words, we had a teaching problem. We probably still do. But I read this curse and one woman spoke up and she said, that curse, 
I thought that was biblical manhood and womanhood. I said, no, that's the curse. That's the curse. That's the battle in marriage. The Lord's calling in our text, in Colossians and in Ephesians 5 and in in 1 Peter, the Lord's calling for wives to submit themselves to their own husbands and for husbands to love their wives like Christ loves the church is to redeem marriage from the curse of Genesis 3. 16. That's why he chose those two. That's why. Point number two. Responsibilities of parents and children to the Lord. Now, first instructions to children. And uh, kids, I want to I talk to you, so don't let your parents listen to this. Uh, it's, not, it's not for them. It's not for your mom. It's not for your dad. This is, this is a Bible verse directed to you. I mean, lots of Bible verses are for you, but they're for other people too. But this one's just for you if, if you're a kid here. Jesus sent, think about it this way, Jesus sent it to you through the Apostle Paul, wrote it down 2,000 years ago, put it in the Bible, and uh, sent it to you in the Bible so that you can read it for yourself and that I can talk about it and, uh, and teach you about what it means. So, kids, you can read it. Verse 20. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this pleases the Lord. I didn't say that right. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. So, children, God cares about you. God loves you. And... He has given you a mom. He's given you a dad. And I know in some situations, he's given you a mom or a dad. Sometimes both are not as present as they are in, in, in certain in families. Like, like, I had the privilege of growing up with both mom and dad in the same household. And I know that, that everybody doesn't get that privilege. But know that that God has given you your mom as a gift because he cares for you. God has given you your dad as a gift because he cares for you. And for many of us, God has given us both mom and dad because he cares for us. And oftentimes, grandma and grandpa because he cares for us. And God gave them to you to take care of you and to love you and to teach you and to do good to you. Now, this means that you are to do what your parents tell you to do and expect you to do. And remember this, that when you obey your mom or your dad, you not only bring joy to your mom or your dad, you please the Lord. Now, to parents... There is an important inference in this text that needs to be spoken because of our current cultural moment. Permissive parenting is on the rise. 
permissive parenting. A, a permissive parent would be one who approaches the relationship of parent and child as if they were buddies. Buddies. Sometimes it's due to a parent's neediness. Sometimes it's due to a parent's um, even guilt, perhaps, of how they've been treated in the past. Or it might be caused by selfishness. A parent too absorbed in themselves and failure to give time and attention to a child. Sometimes it could be due to, like I said, this, this fear of repeating some terrible experiences that, that the parent grew up with when they were a child. I don't know. I mean, it can be for many reasons. Whatever the reason for a permissive approach to parenting, a permissive parent doesn't expect children to listen, doesn't expect children to obey. In fact, a child can't often obey a permissive parent because they're not often given any expectations or commands or instructions or rules. And if there are those things, the permissive parent doesn't enforce them anyway. Yeah, I will never forget, this was several years ago, I was at the, at the Minnesota Twins game in the Metrodome when it was there with my eldest sons, Michael and Elliot, and they were probably, Michael was probably four or five, and Elliot was probably two or three. And you could get into the, to the stadium for $4, and children under five were free. And I was a seminary student, and I was broke, and my wife stayed home and did, had sanity time, and I took those kids to the baseball game. And, and they're probably, you know, a couple thousand people in the metro. No, there's probably like 4,000 people in the metro. So it's empty. You know, you can hear what people are saying across the, the stadium. And um, in those days, yeah, yeah, Kirby Puckett was there, but nobody knew it. You know, they just didn't know he was such a great ball player. So it was around the seventh or eighth inning, and if you don't know baseball, it's like three-quarters of the way through the game. And I could overhear this conversation um, of these two parents, two young parents behind me with their son, who was also about three years old. Um, sidebar, I, my, I, my kids would walk the aisles and, and like beg peanuts and licorice from all the people who were just around. And it was all like one big family. You know, you just, you just kind of, anyway. Uh, <laughs> like I didn't have to buy any treats for them. They just got them from the people around us. <laughs> so they like going to the baseball game. So this conversation is going on behind me. Two young parents with a three-year-old. It goes something like this. The mother said, Tommy, can we go home now? Mommy's really tired. Tommy said, no. <laughs> so daddy said, look, Tommy, the game is almost over, so we could leave just now. Uh, pick up your things and let's go. Tommy said, no. So they didn't leave. Now, Tommy couldn't obey his parents because they never told him anything to do. I wanted to turn around. I didn't, I didn't. And say in a calm and clear voice, Tommy, 
It is so good that you saw your first Twins game. Did you like it? Yeah, I liked it. Good. Now, Tommy, in two minutes, <laughs> Mommy and Daddy are going to leave with you. Okay, now, get ready. I want you to stand up, bring your cotton candy, follow your parents as they lead you out of the seats, up the aisle, and to the car. And, Tommy, do it without crying. Okay? Okay. <laughs> Is that scary? Is that hard? So the inference is, parents, as, I'm going to go back to this over and over again, I think, as those who are chosen and holy and loved by God in Christ, in the strength that God supplies, strong in grace, parent your children. They might not act like they like you. It doesn't matter. God loves you. They will love you. They will love you more if you act like a parent to them than if you act like a buddy. So, parents, teach and instruct your children so that your children can obey you. Instructions to fathers here, also under this same heading, verse 21. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. You know, this is a particular note to parents, especially fathers, warrant this special caution regarding provoking our children to discouragement. We ought not parent in such a way that we push our children to the point that they lose heart. So, mom and dad, when this happens, when you catch yourself just exasperating your children, pushing them to the point of utter discouragement in them, you got to examine yourself because if you read this text like I read this text, the problem's not in your child. The problem may be in you. I can hear, I can hear Paul Tripp. I don't know if you read Paul Tripp's books on marriage or parenting, but he often says, at points like this, fathers, we need God to save us from ourselves and redeem us and change us. Point number three, responsibilities of slaves and masters to the Lord. Just a comment. I, I, I flip-flop in, in using these words, and I just want to tell you why. The word translated in our text, bondservants, is exactly the same word as slaves, which is exactly the same word as servants. And so... I'm, I, I'm using all of the, it's one thing. Different contexts, and then same with the word Lord, same with the word Lord. It's the word master. It's the word, you know, I mean, often when it's talking about the Lord, it's, it, we translate it Lord, and often here in this passage when it's talking about master on earth, it's translated master, not Lord on earth, just to help people not be so confused. But it's just the same word. Bond servants, slaves, servants, it's all one word. Uh, and then master, Lord, it's one word. Okay. This is the longest set of instructions uh, regarding household relationships for the bond servants here. And it also includes, I think, the most divine encouragement 
And without a doubt, these instructions apply to you and your work life. You know, the relationship between your employer and yourself, or if you're an employer, your relationship with those who work under you. There's so much to think about uh, in, in, when you think about slavery and the Bible and the world, and I'm going to stick to my script here. Slavery has existed in human history for thousands of years and in various forms and, in, and from ancient time, remember Joseph was sold into slavery, uh, to the present day, regrettably. I just heard a report about slavery yesterday on the news. Um, thankfully, in most of this world now, it's unthinkable. Some of the texts, or, or some look at these texts in the Bible and say, hey, see, look, the Bible condones slavery. I don't want anything to do with the Bible. Look at that. But that would be an uninformed judgment. The Bible does not condone slavery. It's wrong for anyone to take another human being captive. It's wrong to treat a human being who's been created in the image of God as less than the image of God. Uh, I came across this, this it's three long sentences from Wayne Grudem, and I'm going to read it to you. Um, here's what he says in, in, in helping you and me and us think about the Bible's treatment of slavery. When the author of Hebrews commends his readers by saying, quote, this is Hebrews 10, 34, you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. So a word to a persecuted church, persecuted Christians. Just because the author of Hebrews says that, that does not mean that the Bible supports the plundering of Christians' property or that it commands theft. It only means that if Christians have their property taken through persecution, they should still rejoice because of their heavenly treasure, which cannot be stolen. Similarly, when the Bible tells slaves to be submissive to their masters, it does not mean that the Bible supports and commands slavery, but only that it tells people who are slaves how they should respond. Very helpful. The Bible lays down principles that have worked for hope for slaves, and hope for justice, hope in God, hope that gives them dignity, identity in Christ. It's the teaching of the Bible that eventually undercut slavery in the Western world through men like William Wilberforce, the British politician who began a lifelong campaign against slavery in the British Empire which then had its impact here in the United States. His effort culminated in 1833 with the Slavery Abolition Act. He's a believer. He took biblical truth, applied it to life, and sought change of law in it, through it. I, I cannot take the time to reflect on the differences between American race-based slavery and Roman slavery at this time. There are differences. It would be a distraction to focus on that right now. Now get this, so now. Some scholars estimate 
that the number of slaves in a first century church such as Colossae, if the, if the, uh, the people of the church represented the people in the, in the city, the proportion of slaves could be 20%, 30%, one in three. So you've got a congregation well represented by slaves and masters right before you. Um, my, my third great-grandfather had a, a church like this in St. Louis. Uh, free blacks and, sla- and uh, slaves uh, before the Emancipation Proclamation. What, what do you say to slaves? I, I thought of a parable, a parallel. You know, what do we say to... I mean, Brad and I visited this woman with cancer, Jonelle, last week. What do we say? We, we don't say, you know, Jonelle, we're investing in the American Cancer Society. We're hoping to get a cure for cancer. We don't say that. It's okay, but it's not what you say to somebody with cancer. You say, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. That's what you say. So, Paul doesn't, doesn't say I mean, he does encourage freedom in, in Philemon, but he, he, doesn't, he's, he's, he doesn't take up the government, you know, the changing of the law cause. You know, Christians are less than a fraction of 1% of the Roman world and even less in the whole world. And he just doesn't start the campaign. He speaks to slaves where they are. And to masters. Verse 22. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be repaid back for the wrong he has done. There is no partiality. So how are these bondservants, these slaves to live? Obey in everything what they're told to do with wholehearted sincerity. And do it not by way of eye service as people pleasers, you know, not just working really hard when the master's looking. True also for you in your employment. But obey in everything with wholehearted sincerity, not just when your supervisor is looking as a people pleaser. Unbelievers will never understand the grace of these next words for slaves. You know, you know there's been kind of a, at least a, a, a stream of thought that all the Negro spirituals, they're really just talking about getting on the Underground Railroad and getting north. Like swing low, sweet chariot. I think that's tragic for that to take root. And, and believers, don't believe it for a minute. Eternal hope <laughs> sparked this movement of spirituals. And maybe some of them were, were just secular songs, but I mean, good night. These, these 
slaves, American slaves, are hoping in the redemption that is promised us in Christ. That's why they sing. So I hate it when the secularists take that away from the Negro spirituals. What? Sidebar. That was all sidebar. Yeah, unbelievers won't understand this. Uh, in explaining the reasons for wholehearted obedience and labor, Paul totally changes the paradigm of slavery. Paul basically says, don't think of your human master as your ultimate master. No, you belong to Christ. He bought you. He redeemed you at the cost of his own life. He called you by name. You belong to him. Serve Jesus as master, Lord. He is your master in heaven. Worship him alone. And so as you serve your earthly earthly master, do so in reverence to your Lord Jesus Christ because you are actually serving him. And as you hope for a just reward from your earthly master, which you may or may not receive, know that, verse 24, from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places is yours. The unsearchable riches of Christ is yours. The Lord himself is your inheritance. So you'll get your reward. You'll get your inheritance. Whether that earthly master rewards you for your work rightly or not. And even if your earthly master does wrong, or for that matter, if you do wrong, remember that you both have a master in heaven to whom you must answer. Verse 25, the wrongdoer will be, will, the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality with the Lord, the master in heaven. So I, I climb into this. Maybe you can climb into it. The, the, the slave is lifted. I am serving the Lord of lords and the king of kings in this lot in life. I just feel the head rise. So the Work of a slave, the work of a bondservant, or whatever job you have is redeemed because you belong to the Lord Jesus. And in everything you do, you're called to serve him. Kind of look through your employer, look through the master, and say, no, no, I am serving the Lord Jesus. I'm going at it wholeheartedly, not in a, in a fakey, hypocritical, eye-pleasing way, but I am working hard for the Lord Jesus. The responsibilities of masters to the Lord. The word to the masters is short, perhaps because the, the incentive and the warning was already included in the word to the slave, but the Lord's justice Note here again is the explicit reference to the Lord in the instructions to masters. 
Chapter four, verse one. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. You know, all masters, all supervisors, all employers ought to fear the Lord of heaven and treat their workers with respect and honor and love and in that manner please the Lord not merit his judgment. You know, Paul's prayer, I'm closing now, Paul's prayer in in chapter one, verse 10 is being explained in the passages that we've been covering the the last couple weeks and, and next week. Paul prayed that the church would have wisdom to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. Now, I said this little word so fast, I'm afraid you missed it. Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. We need wisdom to do it. Paul's given us wisdom to live in a manner pleasing of the Lord in these relationships as, as a husband and wife, children and parents, bondservants and masters. And what I didn't make much of was that seven times in the nine verses of our text, it references the Lord. So it's not just slaves who are under the Lord. It's husbands and wives as is fitting in the Lord. It's children and parents. This pleases the Lord. It's all of us as God's people. We are called to live in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him in all these spheres, in the church as we looked at last week. God, give us grace to have wisdom and power to live accordingly. Father in heaven, help us. We, we need your help to live lives worthy of the Lord and please Christ as husbands and wives, as parents and children, as servants and masters or employees and employers, supervisors. We need your wisdom and we thank you for it here in this text. Bring it about in our lives all for the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, I pray. In whose name I pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720-13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.